For those of you who are in shock right now, I'll close my eyes in a minute when we pray and you can sneak out the back. Welcome to Saturday night service. There's a story of a little girl who went over to dinner at her first grade friend's house. The vegetable at the dinner was buttered broccoli. And the mother had asked if she liked it. The little girl replied very politely, Oh yes, I love it. But when the bowl of broccoli was passed, she declined to say anything and take anything. The hostess said, I thought you said you loved broccoli. The little girl replied sweetly, Oh yes, ma'am, I do love broccoli, but not enough to eat it. (laughs) That was at my house. Now, there are many different kinds of love, wouldn't you say? Love on all different levels. There's love for God, and yes, there's love, however minimal, for broccoli. One doesn't require very much, but the other requires everything. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. And if you have a Bible tonight, keep it open because you're apt to use it. It's... Let's look at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Will you pray with me? Lord, we come to you tonight because we have come to know that we can trust you. That you hold the words of eternal life that are able to transform people like us. And so once again, we turn not only to your book, but, Lord, to the Lord of the book. And we ask for wisdom, because, God, we need it, and we need you desperately, as the song said tonight so beautifully, how we need you. Lord, look upon our need, bless our minds, fill our our hearts with understanding, and, Lord, we pray that we would leave with an unction from your Holy Spirit to change and to do what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever asked yourself, what does God require of me as a believer? Or in other words, now that I belong to him, I'm a true follower of Christ, what does he want from me? If we were to jot down a short list of actions that God might require of us, it could look something like this. First of all, we might say that we need to repent of our sins, or at least people in our family need to repent of their sins. It would be a good start. And turn from our past. We might even say that we need to attend church. That's a good start. It's a good place to meet other Christians, sort of learn the language, get involved, get in the flow, uh, fellowshipping with other believers. Or maybe we would uh, venture so far as to say that we should read our Bibles. 
Attend classes. Learn more about God. That sounds like a good thing to do. Or maybe we might even go so far as to say that we could help others or perform good works in the service of Christ. Now that's a pretty good list, wouldn't you say? Okay, good. Good. (laughs) You can nod. However, there's one thing that God requires that is a non-negotiable issue. It is an absolute necessity. It is pure love and devotion to himself and, as we read in Matthew 22, to other believers. God requires love and devotion from a pure heart from every believer. This love is not a love that settles for warm, syrupy, insincere platitudes. This love comes from the depths of a person. It is found in the very grit and function of every everyday living. For the believer whose heart is set on Christ, there's no separation of love of God and life itself. It is love in the extreme. It is, as we say, white hot. Now our text this evening will be Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to cover seven verses. You can turn there right now. When there's a pause, then you can start turning the pages in your Bible. Okay. Because you're slowing the whole thing down because we're going to read together. Okay? I'll hand out a script tomorrow morning. Verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, in tonight's lesson, we're going to cover six elements of Jesus' message to the church of Ephesus. It was a good church, but it had forgotten God's ultimate requirement, and that is love. If you want to jot these down as we go through, I'll run through them very quickly. First of all, in verse 1 and 2, we're going to see Jesus' sovereign control over the church. In verse 2 and 3 and 6, we're going to see Jesus commending the church for its productive hard work in ministry. And then in verse 4, we see Jesus confronts the fellowship for their lack of love. And in verse 5, he corrects the believers by guiding them back to the place where they belong. And in verse 5, the second half, Jesus cautions, giving a warning for them to repent or lose all that they had worked for. And then finally, Jesus issues a call with a view to the future. Now, if you don't know about preacher stuff, this was kind of a feat because I got six C's in there, okay? Uh, Control, commends, confronts, corrects, cautions, and calls. That took about two hours. By the way, that's fine. Just in case you really don't know all that goes into this. 
Let's look at the first, Jesus' sovereign control of the church. Let's look at Jesus' opening statements to the church of Ephesus. He says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works. A statement needs to be made here. Jesus Christ has full, complete knowledge of his church. With sovereign power, he exercises authority over it. That means that there is not one thing that will ever happen in the church, in your lives, in my life, that God will never know about. That nothing will ever be hidden from his sight. He knows everything. Some of you are looking kind of nervous. Yes, he really does know everything. Uh, there's a few symbols that we need to notice at, right at the beginning. He speaks to the angel, or it might be better translated, to the messenger of the church. Uh, that's speaking primarily to the pastors or the local leaders. He also mentions that he holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars, we are told over in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, are the messengers or the pastors of the churches. And then we see that he is walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And also I refer back to verse 20 of chapter 1, that the lampstands represent the churches. Now, there are a few important words or phrases we want to look at next. One of the words we want to look at is the word holds. It is a Greek word that means that Jesus has complete 100% control over the church. You ever take a hold of something? I usually take a hold of my kids. As they're running by the room or something's going on, I'll grab an arm. And I'll have hold of a part of that kid. But I don't have a hold of the whole kid. I'm not going to fit the whole kid in my hand. The word that is used here in the Greek language, and especially in this particular case, it is used in the sense that Jesus has the church, the leaders, everything completely within his grasp. It's not saying that Jesus has a huge hand, because there's a lot of people in the church. But it is to say that nothing goes beyond his grasp. That is to say, he has complete authority and control over the church. You also notice the phrase, the right hand. And the right hand indicates that these leaders, the stars, I mean, are under his sovereign control and he rules the church with them. They're used for him and by him. Christian leaders ordained by Christ function by his leading and power. And that's it. It's for his purposes. And then we see the phrase that he is walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, when we see him in the midst of the lampstands, we're given the idea that he, as a sovereign ruler, is taking note of every activity and all things that are going on. As he said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Now, look at verse 2. The opening phrase is, I know your works. The word I know is the Greek word oida. And it indicates a full, complete knowledge. Again, Jesus knows everything. It's not a knowledge that is learned over time by experience. It is a knowledge that is apprehended all at once like a huge photograph, knowing every detail, nothing escapes. Now, let's pause for a moment, and I want to take your mind to another place. Imagine yourself at the doctor's office. Okay, various responses. My doctor's here, so I have to be polite. Um, Imagine yourself at the doctor's office, 
And your doctor is so famous because he has the ability to know every single thing that goes on in your body. Every cell, every tiny, most minute particle, he knows everything. Imagine that. You walk into the office, he looks you over. Well, I detect that there's a problem with one of the cells on your arm and we'll probably need to slough that off before it becomes cancerous. I mean, imagine going to somebody like that who would know everything about your body. You could ward off almost any disease because they would know what to do before it starts. Now think about Jesus. Jesus knows the detailed activity of the church affairs, but he also knows, think about this, the detailed activity of all the cells. And guess what? We're the cells. We're in the body. He knows every single thing about us. The good, the bad, the ugly. In short, Jesus is in control. I love what A.W. Tozer said. He said, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality, all pluralities, all law, every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. Jesus has absolute control. And you say, well, Dave, you're kind of beating this one a little hard. Well, here's the reason why. That is lesson number one in life. If you don't know who's in control, you're in a lot of trouble, especially if you have kids, right? Sometimes we feel out of control as parents. And one of the things that we need to establish from the beginning is that I'm in control. Now, I have a little kid who, 18 months old, he's a beautiful little boy, redhead. He's part orangutan or something. I don't know, but he (laughs) seems to just sort of wander around the house and pick on us, the rest of the family. But I believed it was incumbent upon me to settle it right from the beginning that I'm in control. And I don't care how stubborn you think you are. Where do you think you got your genes? You got them from me. And I'm bigger and I'm older and I'm grumpier and I'm meaner. That was sort of the statement that I made. I don't, that's not the exact speech. But someone is in control. There is someone that we answer to supremely, and that is God. That is Jesus Christ. Second, we see in verse 2 that Jesus commends the church for its productive hard work in ministry. Look with me at verse 2. It says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. And skip on down to verse 6. He says, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, there's a point we need to make. Your hard work in ministry, Christian, your hard work in ministry and service will never go unnoticed by God. Never. 
It will never go unnoticed. You'll never do some wonderful work for him that he does not recognize. And as you read this list of the Ephesian church, you think, my, what a wonderful, fantastic church. Now let's look at their works, their general deeds. The word that is used twice in this passage is a word that is, that is used as labor. And is the Greek word, kapos, which denotes, kapos, which denotes an all-out effort. It is labor that makes one sweat. It is hard work. The work that they produced in that fellowship, in that community, was hard, laborious work, and they stuck to it. It speaks of their character. And then it speaks of their patience. The word that is used for patience is hupomone, which means steadfast endurance. It is not a grim patience that resigns itself to accept things. It is a courageous gallantry which accepts suffering and hardship and turns them into grace and glory. It is beautiful patience, waiting upon the Lord, waiting for the victory. Now notice a few other things. That they do not tolerate those who are evil. You have evil people in your church? Not in the Ephesian church. We don't like them. There's an old story that is told about the aged apostle John who in the Ephesian bathhouse, once confronted by the heretic Serenthus, the the guy had walked into the bathhouse. It was a public bathhouse. And it was stated that John pointed to him and he said, Everyone flee! Flee the precincts, lest it fall upon our heads because this heretic has entered here. Kind of nice, a little tough there. They didn't put up with evildoers. They put false prophets to the test. That is to say, you'd have a lot during that time. There were a lot of these traveling sort of apostle types that had sprung up in the church. They went around. They'd hang out for a few days, kind of eat over at so-and-so's house, eat over at this other person's house, show up to the meeting, kind of give a few little prophecies, a good word from another part of the country. And they seemed to linger a little bit too long. And a lot of the writings from the early church say, if this guy hangs out over three days in your town, he's a false prophet. Get him out of there. He's in it for the bucks. He's trying to mooch off of you guys. They tested them and they put them out of the church. They found them to be false. And then in verse 6 it says that they detest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now that isn't the deeds of Nickelodeon. For those of you parents who think Nickelodeon is evil, I think you're going a little too far. Uh, There was an early heretic by the name of Nicholas. And in the word in Greek for um, Nicolaitan or, or Nicholas is a two words which basically means to conquer the people. And over in uh, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, there is a connection made between Balaam, remember that very infamous prophet, and the Nicolaitans. It's interesting that the Hebrew construction of the, for the word Balaam also means to conquer the people. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to what these people did. But some of the early church writers had this to say, and it's not very good. Irenaeus said this of the Nicolaitans, that they lived lives of unrestrained indulgence. Hippolytus says that Nicholas was one of the seven and that he departed from correct doctrine and was in the habit of inculcating indifference of food and life. Clement of Alexandria probably had the most damning statement, though. He said, they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. 
So there was some type of immorality, some type of, of, uh, of antinomian activity, throwing off the law, just saying, hey, man, just live free. We're all free in the Lord. And they didn't put up with those guys. They didn't put up with false prophets. In fact, they were a fantastic church. Some 50 years earlier, Paul warns that these type of people would be around over in Acts chapter 29 and will Acts chapter 20, verse 29. In Ephesus, he writes this. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember for that for a space of three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. The Ephesian church stood faithful to the word of God, didn't they? The Ephesian church was not only faithful, but it was a famous church in a very famous city. A little background, I think, is necessary at this point. Ephesus was a major city in Asia Minor. It was a seaport. It was on the major trade routes throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, it was self-titled the Supreme Metropolis of Asia. It was the center of one of the most detestable uh, religions, full of superstition. That was the uh, worship of Artemis, or as it was called locally, Diana of the Ephesians. It was home of the Temple of Artemis, which was the great temple of Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was 450 feet long. It was 220 feet wide, 60 feet high, had great folding doors, 127 great marble pillars, 37 of them were covered with gold. And as it was said, the worship of Diana was religious immorality at its worst. That brings us to the next point about this place. It was a very wicked city. In fact, the temple of Diana, it was sort of a weird superstitious cult. There There was a strange black object that they had found many years before. And the the goddess Artemis, or Diana, was this strange multi-breasted figure with bulls all around him. And within the temple precincts, there was asylum given to every evildoer in the empire. So if you were a crook or you had just murdered somebody, hey, where are you headed? Well, you know, I'm heading to Ephesus to go hang out at the temple because as long as you stayed in the temple precincts, you had asylum by the state. Also, every night, hundreds of temple priestesses were sent out into the city streets as sacred prostitutes. In fact, one of their own philosophers, Heraclitus, who was known as the weeping philosopher, had this to say, that no one could live in Ephesus without weeping at its immorality. It was prominent, it was wealthy, and it was wicked. Now let's look at the church. The church was also a very prominent church. It was sort of a who's who of the ancient Christian world. First of all, you had Aquila and Priscilla. How many of you know those guys? Very famous singing group. No, actually... (laughs) Then there was Apollos, the great orator and uh, apostle to Herod. Um, well, no, that's a joke. Okay, there was Timothy, who was their first pastor. There was Paul, who was there. And he was there for three years, longer than he was in any other church. And then in the latter years of that first century, there was John the Apostle, the aged, who lived there and taught in the church. 
Now, we need to make a note here. With so many wonderful things going on in this church, it's hard to believe that it was nothing less less than perfect. I mean, they lived in a corrupt world. They weren't corrupted by it. They had an impact. They were reaching out. They weren't being changed by society. They were changing society. There's a lot to say about them. It was a dream church. I can only imagine if I had been around in those days, I would have loved to just be there to hear the teaching. I would have been one of those guys going... Well, you know, I'm saving up my money because I, you know, I heard I'm going to go to Ephesus because I heard that, you know, John's there and Paul's been there. They have such great teaching there. Nonetheless, Jesus has something more to say about them. Look with me at verse four of Revelation two. Jesus confronts the fellowship for their lack of love. Now, wait a minute. He says, nonetheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. You mean to tell me that a church like this, like Ephesus, has a problem like this? What about all the wonderful teachings, all the doctrine that they had received? Doesn't that insulate a believer from problems like this one? Apparently not. Apparently not. You see, there's, there's something strange that happens. That no church in the past, even today, even us are immune from falling away from the very reason that we were called to Christ in the first place. And sometimes, however ironic, it is right in the midst of great work and progress. Look with me over at Ephesians chapter 4. It will begin with verse 11. And he gave himself... And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body till we come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to the perfect man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into all things into him who is the head, Christ, for whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share and causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Notice the phrase that all of this good teaching and all of this great doctrine was to be done within the confines and the atmosphere of love. Great teaching and good works are never to be separate from their purifying motivational element, and that is love. Love and truth were never meant to be separate in God's economy. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And though I have all faith so that I could move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. C.S. Lewis had this very insightful statement to say. He said, a man's spiritual health is exactly proportional to his love for God. I would have to agree. Now herein lies the problem. In verse 4 of Revelation 2, he says this, Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. The Greek here is emphatic. 
And the clause could be translated, your first love you have left. Jesus uses the word agapain, which speaks of the deep kind of love that God has for his people. It is the love of espousal, first love. Listen to what Paul said some 35 years before to the Ephesians. He said, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, their beginning was one of love, purity, deep devotion to God. Paul said, I had heard of it and I was blown away by it. I was inspired by it. But that was about 35 years ago. The Weiss translation says it well. It says, I have this against you. Your love for me, that earliest love, you abandoned. The Phillips translation says this, but I hold this against you, that you do not love me as you did at first. Does it sound like your spouse? (laughs) Not mine, but... um. (laughs) That's Jesus' phrase to the church. Now, Oswald Chambers had this to say. He said, Beware of anything that competes with loyalty to Jesus Christ. The greatest competitor of devotion to Jesus is service for him. Love, my friend, has always been the hallmark of the Christian faith. It is love that it first began with God as he looked down on a poor, pitiful creation that had wandered away from him, had sinned, and he sent his son... And he called us to himself. And in the midst of that, we have been enabled by him to in turn return that love to him. And that love has become complete. That's our hallmark. That's our calling card. Now keep your finger in Revelation and look with me at 1 John chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. P.T. Forsyth had this to say. He says, It is possible to be so active in the service of Christ as to forget to love Him. Many a man preaches Christ but gets in front of Him by the multiplicity of his own works and words. Christ can do without our works. What He wants is you. If He really has you, He will have all of your works. What does God require? As it says in Matthew 22, loving God and loving your neighbor. Now, Jesus not only confronts the church for their lack of love, but he also corrects the believers by guiding them back to the place they belong. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Note here. Long-lasting change usually doesn't happen overnight. It comes about by careful planning and deliberate progress toward a goal. The church didn't get into this shape overnight. It was degenerative. It took a long period of time. 
Now, how many of you here would say that you're out of shape? Don't raise your hand. It took you a long time to get there. I have a friend who has been helping me work out, and when we first started working out, I said, man, I'm just so out of shape. And he says, look, pal, it took you over 30 years to get this bad. It's going to take you a while to get out, so just kind of shut up and let's move on. (laughs) Have you noticed that if you leave things to themselves, they never maintain themselves? There is a natural tendency for things to get worse or fall apart. We have a name for it. It's called entropy. This Christmas, we got our kids these skates inside the shoes. You've seen those? They have the the, the big soles, and then you click a little button, and the skates pop out. Well, we have some hard, what is called Eurotile. I don't really know what that is, but it was in the house when we bought it. Um, It's in our dining room and in the long hallway that connects all of our bedrooms. And so the days following Christmas, we allowed them to get on their little skates because it was cold outside and skate through the house. I thought, I'm not going to be the ball humbug, you know, dreadful Santa Claus who doesn't allow the kids to play with the Tories. So they stayed in these shoes for like three days straight. (laughs) In fact, one of them took the shoe off and I said, what is that smell? And I'd realize, if you kids' feet don't stink, what's the matter? They, well, we've had them on for like four days, Daddy. Well, I looked down at the dining room floor, and it was scuffed up. It was terrible, absolutely pitiful. And so I got down there like an idiot and started trying to clean this off. And minutes turned into hours, and hours turned into what it seemed like an eternity. And I stayed on the dining room floor. We don't have a big dining room floor. I stayed there for a good four hours scrubbing on my hands and knees to get this out. Now, needless to say, there's a ban on the little skate things in the house. But if you just let things go, I wouldn't walk in someday and the floor is naturally cleaned. Oh, good. I knew that if I left it long enough, it would be cleaned. You've got to do something about it. They naturally degenerate. Now, what about your marriage? What would happen if you neglect your responsibility in your relationship with your spouse? Think things would get better? Not hardly. What about your job? What if you decided all of a sudden that I'm just not going to show up to work anymore? We'll see what happens down there at work. When it's going to happen is you're going to get fired. You don't put in the work, nothing's going to happen. People are going to notice and you're going to get fired. Now, the good news is that there's hope for people like us. Jesus has a wonderful plan that can reverse this process. It involves three steps, and they're easy to remember. It's remembering, repenting, and doing. The first step is to remember. Do you remember when you were a small kid, as a child, all the energy that you had? You can raise your hand on this. I had a lot of energy. Anytime the door was open, I mean, someone said, hey, you want to play football? You got it. You want to jump off the house? You got it. Don't tell mom. Uh, You want to go down and play basketball? You got it. You want to jump? Whatever you want to do, let's do it. And it seemed that I was never tired. I always had this boundless energy. But something happened over the years that I am not the person I once was. In fact... I'm out of shape. (laughs) 
but I'm getting back to the right spot. Now, do you remember the early days of your Christian life? Do you remember what it was like when you first were saved? Remember what it was like reading the Bible, worshiping throughout the day, sharing the gospel with other people with great excitement and fervor, serving in the ministry with joy, having tender conscience towards sin, repenting, obeying God as a matter of priority, looking forward to the fellowship with other brothers and sisters in the faith. Remember how glorious it felt? How many of you remember that? Fantastic. To be freed from sin, filled with such joy and purpose. He says, remember from where you have fallen. Remember the heights. Where are you now? The second step is to repent. If you look back and see from where you have fallen, from the previous heights, repentance means a complete turnaround. And that's what's in order here. Because what repentance is, and is an exact 180 degree turn from what you were doing, going back in the other direction. True repentance involves three things. A recognition that you were wrong. Once true repentance has taken a hold in your life, you have to recognize that what you and I have been doing is wrong. The Ephesian church has to realize, hey, we've done all these great works, but... Lord, you're right. I haven't been loving you the way that I should. I've been wrong. No lying, please. God knows everything, remember? Then there is a genuine sorrow for your actions. You have to mean it from your heart. You should cry out to God and say, God, I am so sorry for the way that I have been previously. And then, finally, there is a turning away from sin and turning to what is right. It's time to head back up the action, up the mountain to take action. Okay, the third step is doing. In Revelation 5, he says, repent and do the first works. And in doing is where we find the most lasting key to change. Do you know that? Doing is where it's at. Just like Nike says, just do it. Now, again, I bring up this friend who I've been working out with. A year ago in December... He started coming by my house and said, I'm going to come by your house at 6 a.m. and we're going to go for a walk. And so we went for a walk for 40 minutes. The next week, we walked for 39 minutes and ran one minute. Seemed pretty easy. Next week, same thing. As the weeks increased, I found myself running more and gasping for breath even more. And I hated it. In fact, every time we did it, I said, I hate this part. Will will there ever come a day that I actually enjoy doing this? Well, you know what? It's a year later, and I can run a lot further, and I actually enjoy doing the work. It's the same stuff that I used to do when I was younger. But I had gotten so far away that the road back was sort of steep and arduous. It's the doing that really matters. It's that way with our relationship with our family, isn't it? Guys, let me give you a little hint about your relationship with your wife. All the stuff that you used to do in the beginning, you better be doing it now. 
And if you're sitting around wondering why she has a sad look on her face and she hasn't cooked you anything in a while and you got a big pile of dirty clothes over on the side of the, the house and there's lots of notes left about television dinners sitting in the freezer, you've forgotten something, pal. It's true. Every time that I go back to the beginning to the love that I had and all the beautiful words I used to say, all of those old feelings that were there in the beginning come flooding back. It's the doing. What did you do when you were first a believer? I want to challenge you to do something tonight before you go home or when you go home, before you get in bed. I'd like you to write down all the things that you used to do as a believer. Write them down. And then begin to practice them as a matter of course. It's not the writing down. It's not the thought that counts. It's the actual doing that will make change in your life. Now, Jesus issues a warning here. In verse 5, he says, Remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Over in Matthew 5, Jesus states that we are the light of the world. And a city that is set upon a hill is not easily hidden. He says, therefore, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What a privilege. But folks, there's a warning here. Jesus, if you'll remember, rules the church with his authority and power. Therefore, obedience to his commands to repent are a must. Otherwise, if we refuse to obey, definite consequences will follow. Or as it says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body and in your spirit, for they are God's. They belong to Him. The loss of this eternal perspective always has devastating consequences. It's interesting that in Ephesus, the lamp is out today. In fact, the church continued and was later the scene of a very major council, but in the 5th century, both the church and the city declined, and the immediate area has been completely desolate for the past 14 centuries. I went to Ephesus a few years ago, and I went to all the churches that were written to in the early chapters of the book of Revelation. And Jesus told them to repent, and if they didn't repent, he was going to take away their lampstand, their light that shines into the world. And you know what, folks? There's nothing there. In a country of 70 million people, there is a conservative estimate that there is probably only between 1,200 and 2,000 evangelical believers in that country. And when I think about that, I immediately think if it could happen to them as I flew back home to America, I was thinking, man, it could happen to us. And if Jesus' words are that true and he is that faithful to do what he says, my friends, he'll be that faithful with us as well. Now, I'm not saying this to scare you, but Jesus gives us a warning, a command. Finally, Jesus issues a call with a view for the future. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's hope 
if you're within earshot of this message and you hear what the Bible is saying, there's a chance to change. This message was to individuals. This message is to the church. And it says that he who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is the midst of the paradise of God. He who overcomes are those who have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. No one overcomes by his own power. We overcome only by Christ's merit. The tree of life that is spoken here speaks of the paradise of God. It is eternal life. This encouragement to true love reminds us again of God's gracious provision for salvation in time and eternity. Love for God is not wrought by legalistic observing of commands, but by responding to one's knowledge and apprehension of God's love. We'll close with this story. A little boy got into the elevator in the Empire State Building in New York. He and his daddy started to the top. The boy watched for the signs flashing as they went by the floors. The 10th floor, the 20th floor, the 30th, 40, 50, 60, 70. They kept on going up. And finally, the little boy got nervous. And he took his daddy's hand and he said, Daddy, does God know we're coming? (laughs) Yes, he does. As Jesus said in John 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe in me also. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It was God's love for us that sent Jesus to the cross. It was God's love for us that forgave us of our sins. It was God's love for us that will bring us home to heaven to be with him. And it is this same love that calls us to return to him with all of our hearts. Love from a pure heart. God will settle for nothing less, my friend. Let's pray. Lord, this is a very sobering message. When we think of a very prominent, healthy church could overlook something so simple and basic as maintaining pure love for you. But Lord, we know that if it could happen to them, it could happen to us. And so Lord, we pray that tonight you would examine our hearts. Lord, as we lay them bear before you and Lord that we know that you look in the inmost being you know our motives you know everything about us Lord cleanse us show us from where we've fallen we don't want to end up this way we want to end up as the apple of your eye maintaining consistent love for you but I pray for folks tonight who have cold hearts who have sat in church and messages just fly by satisfied with sin. But I pray tonight that would break and just the warm desire of pure love for you would once again enter their heart. Purify your church, Jesus. We so need you.